Haggai, all right? So Haggai is, if you want to, okay, how do I find that real quick? Um, go to Matthew and turn back a couple of books, all right? It's between the Z's, uh, Zephaniah and Zechariah. Um, how many of you watched uh, the Super Bowl last week? How many of you watched that, all right? How many of you were um, excited with the outcome? You were rooting for the Rams? All right, we got a few. How many of you were not excited? You were rooting for the Bengals and cool Joe Burrow and all that, all right? How many of you were just watching for the commercials? You didn't care, all right? So commercials were a little different this year, uh, but there was one commercial in particular that got lots of attention and caused a website to crash because it was a weird commercial. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but there were, it cost $7 million for 30 seconds. This company paid $14 million for this. You got it, Josh? How many of you remember this? All right. How many of you, are you can take it down, Josh, because I don't want a QR code and stuff. All right. How many of you took a picture of the QR code to see what was there? All right. Where'd it go to? Coinbase, which is a cryptocurrency company. Crypto was everywhere. FTX and crypto and Dogecoin. I don't, here's what I want to tell you real quick. Just start at the beginning. I don't understand it at all. All right. The only thing I understand less than crypto money is NFTs. I don't understand any of that stuff. All right. You may have crypto. Zimay here goes, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of this. All right. All right. It's good. I don't either. I don't know how to explain it to you. But imagine 10 years ago trying to explain to someone that we would be talking about this type of currency that is somehow buried in hard drive bits on people's computers. I looked up just a little bit of stuff about it today, um, and it's it's just strange kind of currency. It's very volatile. It goes ups and down. A couple of weeks ago, you know, we talked about um, hidden treasure, things that people have in their houses that nobody knows how valuable they are, where you hear stories in this realm, in this cryptocurrency stuff, all the time. For instance, this is a Laszlo Haniak. We got a picture. There he is. With two pizzas that he bought with Bitcoin. He was the first person ever to buy something in the real world with digital money, like Bitcoin. Not backed up by real money. And he bought these two pizzas, and about this is about 12 years ago. He spent 10,000 Bitcoin on it. This, the, the people that know what Bitcoin are like, wait, wait, what? Today, that would be around $400 million. Hope it was good Papa John's is all I got to say, right? I mean, that's, that kind of stuff has happened, all right? So he spent that. There was a guy in the United Kingdom that threw out his computer and hard drive, and one of his friends said, didn't you have some Bitcoin on that? And he goes, oh, yeah, I don't remember how much. And he looked it up real quick. He had written it down somewhere, and he realized it was worth about $6 million, and he went to get it out of the trash, and they had already taken it to the landfill. So he spent half a day looking for a $6 million hard drive. He didn't find, how long would you look for a $6 million hard drive in a landfill? Now, here's the point of all of that. I mean, I've, there have been people over the last few weeks and months that have become millionaires one day and lose it all the next. It's a very up and down kind of thing. 
And it's just a reminder when I hear about this stuff, even though I don't understand it at all, and don't have any of it, I don't have any investment in it at all, is that you have to be careful where you invest, right? You have to know what you're investing and know what the return may be. You have to be careful where you put it. Well, there's a biblical theme there because one of the strongest themes in Scripture is that we need to invest in what truly matters. Make sure our priorities are straight. Today's the last day that we're going to be talking about this concept of be rich. Today is the last sermon in that series. Next week we're going to actually start the series of messages that will lead us all the way up to Easter. But we use as our theme verse around this understanding of be rich, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. And reality is that 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19 is really a passage or a set of verses about priorities. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present age. I say this every week. If you're here and you make more than $35,000 as a household, you're in the top 1% households in the world. And by any definition, being in the top 1% makes you rich. You may not feel rich. You may not think you're rich compared to other people. But in reality, most of us in this room are rich in this present age. And the point that he makes is that you are to instruct those that are rich here and now, that have stuff here, not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but to put their hope on God. Set your priorities right, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. And then he tells them this, and this has kind of been part of our discussion, instruct them to, and here's the investment part of this, Don't invest in the things of this earth. Don't invest in the pleasures of this world. Don't invest in the materials here. But invest in doing what is good. To be rich in good works. To be generous to other people. To be willing to share. To store up treasure for themselves and a good foundation for the coming age. That they may take hold of what is truly life. The priority issue here that he says is they have invested and have so much of this world that their heart is tied to it. They need to begin to invest in the things of the world to come and to the eternity that we have and the kingdom of God that is coming. And as you do that, you will understand what life really is. So what does that have to do with Haggai that I told you to turn to? Because he is going to talk to the Israelites about the need for them to understand what is truly important with where they are investing their money and their time and their talent as a nation and as individuals. Haggai chapter 1 says this. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now we're going to stop there just for a moment. Because what's happening in this process is it gives us an exact time that is happening. This is 520 B.C. Or if you want to be a little more specific by looking at the calendar, it's the first day of what would have been their August of 520 B.C. This is 18 years after Daniel had died. 
This is after the Israelites had been sent into exiles in Babylon and had been returned back to Jerusalem and back to the promised land. God had kept his promise. He always keeps his promises. He had brought them back just as he had foretold to Jeremiah and to other prophets as he had mentioned to David that he would always have a king and always have a line and that he would never destroy them. After he had put them in exile, he brought them back. And they are back from Babylon. He even used the pagan king Cyrus to bring them back and to help pay for remodeling what's going to happen. And around the time they came back, which would have been about 18 years before this, two leaders stepped up big time. Nehemiah and Ezra. There are books of the Bible about them. Uh, Nehemiah and Ezra both had unique parts, individual parts of building the nation of Israel back up. And they were vitally important. Nehemiah helped them build back the wall around their city so that people couldn't come in and just steal whatever they wanted. Ezra helped build the foundation of the temple and also helped to restore the nation back to the law of God. So you have that initial kind of thrust, that initial action, that initial push. And then they stop building for 16 years. They build the foundation of the temple and then they stop. You may remember um, when I when I first moved here almost 15 years ago now, um, there was a sign up at this property that was right down um, um, downtown on Broadway um, that was right there, and it was just a hole in the ground. And it sat there like that for like 13, 14 years. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay. And it was just there. And it kept being a promise of something was coming. And every time I'd pass, I was like, when are they going to start doing something with that? Right? That's what the temple was in Jerusalem during this time. They had built a little bit. In fact, by the time they get to building the temple, the foundation had come under disrepair. They had to start from scratch in a lot of ways. But it had been built and then nothing had been done. Well, why didn't they do anything about it? Well, they would say that resources were tight. They had lots of other priorities. They had to rebuild an economy. They had to rebuild their structure, their infrastructure. They had to make sure the walls were protected. They had to send their men to make sure that they protected against enemies that were coming. They had bunkered down into their homes. They had bunkered down into their individual groups. They didn't want to be around a lot of other people. They were saying, we want to take care of us and now and here, and we're not going to worry about what's happening with the temple. And yet, they were the people of God rescued by Him, His people that He had been the provider, the shield, and salvation for. And as He restored them to Jerusalem, what was supposed to be the center of their lives together as a nation? The temple of God. The manifest presence of God where they could worship and celebrate and do all that God had called them to do. And here we are in August of 520 B.C., just before the great fig and pomegranate harvest were about to happen, just before they were going to begin to bring in the fruits of their labor. And my guess is they looked out from what we see in the rest of Haggai, and it wasn't what they expected. It wasn't as strong as they wanted. And they begin to ask the questions, what are we going to do? Why is this happening? Why can't we get established? Why can't we get momentum going forward? Why can't it seem things are happening that we want to see happen? Why are we not as fruitful as we want to be? 
It's also important that he talks about on the first day of the month, it would have been the new moon cycle, and on the first day of the month, under their calendar in the, in the around August of 520 B.C., would have been the day that they were required to bring a sacrifice to the temple for the harvest. And so all of those things that are there are reminding them that they haven't done what God has called them to do. Verse 2 says this, The Lord of armies says this, These people say, The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. He says, the people look out and they say, it's not time yet. We'll, we'll get to that when we can get to that. It's not, it's not time yet for the temple. When, when, it, when, when it, the right time is here, when we, when we get the funds that we need to, and we've got some extra money, we'll put all that together. That's when we'll take care of the temple of God. That's when we'll prioritize that. But, but right now we've got some other stuff that's got to be done. Verse 3. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. He says, is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The Lord of the army says, think carefully about your ways. This is what he says to them. You're saying it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord that is to be the physical manifestation of what my presence would be for you, the place where I would meet with you, where you could continue the actual acts that I've called you to in order to have a relationship with me. You are saying that you cannot take time to build that, but your houses have been built and they have been improved upon and they are in luxury in some ways. Now, we don't read... We repaneled houses, and for some reason I think about the, the trend that's actually come back now some, the wood paneling in houses. Like, well, that wasn't a, wasn't a big sign of, of uh, wealth at any time of my years. But in Jerusalem, it was the point that your houses are nice, and you've taken care of yourself, but you haven't come to take care of the house of the Lord. Now, here's what I want to tell you. This, this chapter, I actually preached a, a series of messages on Haggai um, 10 years ago. It seems crazy for me it's been that long, 10 years ago. And I called that series, I don't know if you, any of you remember this title, but we called it, uh, many of you weren't even here at that time, all right? We called it Reversing Ichabod. Ichabod was the name of the child that was born on one of the worst days in the history of Israel when their spiritual leadership all dies or is killed and the Ark of the Covenant is stolen and a mother gives birth to a child and she dies in birth, but before she dies, she says, name the child Ichabod, which means God's glory has departed. And Haggai, the point of this entire book is God is saying to his people, I want to return. I want to establish you as a nation that is a testimony to the nations. I want to be the God who is seen throughout the world as your God for my people. And that people like they did in the time of the Exodus would say, surely Israel's God is the Lord God, the one and only. I'm ready for my glory to descend again on the nation. But your priorities are completely out of whack. And because of that, you have built your own homes until they are fine. And you have left the house of the Lord in ruin. 
Now, sometimes people will use this for a capital funds campaign. We're not doing a capital funds campaign right now, so that's not what it's about. And can I tell you, that's not really what this passage was about in the first place. The point God is making is, you have chosen other priorities over what I have called you to do in your worship of me. And he tells them what the result of that is going forward. Verse 6. After he tells them to think carefully about your ways, he says this. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. Verse 7. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crop. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever ground, whatever the ground yields on people and animals and on all that your hands produce. So God says, you have put your priorities in the wrong place and this is the result of what you have. I want to show you a couple of things that this passage reminds us of. And that first thing is this. Misplaced priorities in our lives lead to frustration. Let me ask you a quick question, all right? According to this passage, Haggai chapter 1, who is frustrating the plans of the people of Israel at this time? Who says they're doing it? God. God says, I am frustrating your plants. I am not giving you the harvest. I am causing a drought. He even says, why? <laughs> he's almost like he's asking the question they're asking in their mind. Because he says to them, you did this and it didn't happen. When you brought in the harvest, I ruined it. And you say, why God? Why did you do that? And he says, because my house lies in ruins while you are busy in your own. Because your priorities are out of whack. And because of that, you are living a life that is completely frustrated. Another way to say that is God did it to get his people's attention because they had failed to recognize the importance of putting God first in their lives. And as a result of not putting God first in their lives, they were being frustrated in every aspect that they could imagine. Matthew six thirty three reminds us, right? That we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Now, just a quick question. You may not know this, but we'll kind of talk through it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. It's right in the midst of a section where God is talking about a very specific problem that most of us in this room experience on a regular basis that he tells us not to experience. Anybody know what he's telling us not to do in this part of chapter 6? Worry. 
And he says, don't worry about that. The pagans worry about that. You don't worry about that. My God's going to take care of you. And then he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. He's saying, if you're worried about what you're going to eat or where you're going to go or what your clothing is or how you're going to live, don't worry about that. Seek first the kingdom of God and God will take care of all the rest. Now, we have a saying here at this church. We know what the word all means, right? All means all. It means everything you can imagine, everything you can worry about. God will take care of that if we will seek first the kingdom. And so he's telling the people in Haggai the same thing. You're worried about your crops. You're worried about your defense. You're worried about the invading nations. You're worried about what kind of produce you're going to have. Seek first my kingdom and I'll take care of all of that. C.S. Lewis once said, when you put first things first... God will throw in second things. But if you put second things first, you'll not only lose the first things, but eventually the second ones will go as well. I want to say something real quick. I'm not saying here any kind of name it, claim it gospel where you just tell God what you want and as long as you have enough faith, God will take care of it. That's not what Scripture teaches. In fact, Scripture teaches in lots of places that when we follow the Lord, it can be a very difficult existence and we will face trouble. Jesus told his disciples that. But the Bible also teaches in place after place after place, including Haggai 1 and Matthew chapter 6, among other places in Scripture, that if we put truly God first, he'll take care of the rest. Not God first to see what we can get from it. Not God first to get answers to our prayers. But God first for the sake of glorifying his name and extending his kingdom. That when we put our lives in our focus on that, then God will take care of all the rest. The Israelites were coming to God and basically saying, God, we don't have the ability to build. We don't give because we don't have any excess. And God basically says to them, you don't have any excess because you don't give. That if your priorities were in the right way, you wouldn't be frustrated about your crops. You wouldn't be frustrated about your life. You'll be frustrated about your direction. And so here's my question to you this morning. Where is God trying to get your attention about areas of your life that you have placed above Him? Your career, your job, your family, your schooling, your pleasures, your joys. Where is God trying to frustrate you in this moment so that you would realize that only when you put Him first does life truly have meaning? That verse that we've been reading every week at the start of this series about being rich towards the things that God wants us to be, at the end it says, then they'll truly discover what life is all about. Misplaced, misplaced priorities leads to frustration. And related to that, and a little different flavor, misplaced priorities lead to discontentment. There's this interesting picture in verse 6. He lists all these things. They harvest litter. You're never satisfied. There's that discontent. You drink and never have enough. You put on clothes, but they're not warm. And then there's this picture at the end. And the wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The picture there literally is that they didn't have pockets. They wore tunics. They didn't have pockets like we have. But just for our case, that you've got a pair of pants and you've got a pocket. And every time you get some money, you put it in there. And there's a hole in the pocket. And the money just keeps dripping out. And you never have enough. 
He says, when your priorities are in the wrong place, you're never going to be content. You'll get married and still feel alone. You'll buy that vacation home and get the family together and you'll still be disconnected. You'll succeed in life and still not feel that it matters. You'll make enough money and get the things that you've always wanted and it will not satisfy. When our priorities are not where they need to be, we discover that it never leads to contentment. You know who Jim Carrey is? Comedian, was on top of the world for a long time. He's still acting now, but he's a, li- he's a little strange at times. Jim Carrey once said this, and this has been fairly recently. I think everybody in the world should be able to get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. I think about, I've used this illustration multiple times, but I still, every time I think about this, I flash back to um, a 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady after he had won, I think, three Super Bowls. And they ask him what keeps him dry, his drive going. You know, keep wanting to go win more and more. And he said, and there was, he says lots of things in that interview, but one of the things he says is, and one of the things I realized was when I won one, it didn't feel like I thought it would. And it didn't bring me everything that I wanted. Jeremiah chapter 2 has this verse that talks about what we, his people, do and what we have done. He says, my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. He says, not only have they committed the evil of abandoning me, they've tried to fill their lives with these other things that has cracks in it. It's this really profound picture of cisterns that were places that they would store their water. That was a vital necessity for them. And he said, you've got a cistern that has leaks in it and it'll never be full. What had happened in the book of Haggai is instead of building the temple of God like God had called them to do, they had taken care of their homes and their places and their people and they had worked the land and they had done everything they knew to do and they had their priorities out of whack and as a result they were continuing to build for themselves idols around them, cisterns around them that were cracked and could not hold water. And we find ourselves in that situation. There are a few things that we often do. One is we blame the idol that we've been serving. So we blame our spouse or our family or our career or our enjoyments in life, our extracurricular stuff. And we get mad at them and we try something else. We blame ourselves where we say, well, it's my fault, and we live in shame and guilt. We blame the world and become cynical about all that is about us. One of the things that breaks my heart is to see how cynical our nation has become. Well, we realize that we were made for something more, that the things that we're trying to build our lives around aren't enough.
the people in Haggai had neglected the first priority when they got back, which was to build the temple of God. And as a result, their life was frustrated and they couldn't find contentment. Does anybody know who this next picture is? It's Cooper Cup, all right? He kind of had a he had a decent game the other night. Um, I don't know if you saw any of the stories this week, but uh, Cooper Cup's a devoted believer, by the way. Um, and I don't know if you saw the stories, but he was hurt the last time the Rams were in the Super Bowl. He couldn't play. They lost that game. And he told this story. Oh, Siri just told me what happened in the Super Bowl. Thanks, my watch. So he they lost. And he said that as he was walking off the field, he was walking off and he turned around and he said the Lord gave him a vision. You may see this story this week. The Lord gave him a vision that they were coming back in a couple of years and that they were going to win and that he, which at that time Cooper Cup was not Cooper Cup, that he would win the MVP for the Super Bowl. And he said, I saw it as clearly as what I see it today. And he ended that press conference with a scripture. This is what you may not know about Cooper Cup. Cooper Cup sells apparel. And he has a slogan that he kind of says, which is, compete for a crown that will not fade. And this was the scripture verse that he quoted and talked about. After the Super Bowl, after the MVP, and if you buy a shirt from his website, it's on the back of one of the shirts. It's that, don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. I I think about, you know, the the Olympics have just finished, they're done, and, and some of you watched and some of you didn't, but think about the dedication it takes to get to that place. I don't know if you saw, there was an American that won in cross-country skiing. Let me just say, for the record, I can think of nothing more miserable in life to do than cross-country skiing. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? On skis, cross-country running in 20-degree weather at the best days. Awesome. She won today in an event that no American had ever won in, and she did it two days after having food poisoning, and it made her where she now has an officially a gold, a silver, and a bronze, because she won the silver today. And she was the first to win the gold in the event. She's the first to win a silver in this event. And you think about, they were talking about her training, and it's years of training. They would have had games in Corinth similar to the Olympics. In fact, there were two competing games around that time period, the Olympics and the games that were held in Corinth. And he says, these athletes that you talk about all the time, they do it. They discipline themselves. They do it, he says at the end, to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize, for a crown that will not fade. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that I may be preaching to others. I might get disqualified myself. That's the quotes that he did. The point that he's making is, this is awesome. <laughs> Being MVP of the Super Bowl, that's a pretty awesome thing, right, in life. He says, but I compete for a crown that will not fade. Unlike the people in Haggai, 
unlike people throughout the scriptures that get their priorities wrong, I want to be someone that lives my life firmly focused on the thing that God has called me to do. You say, why is this a part of a sermon that's been about giving? Well, because the thing that shows our heart as much as anything else is where we give our time and our talent and our resources. And I want to invest in things that glorify God and extend His kingdom. And I hope that as a church you want to do the same. And I want to live my life not frustrated and not discontent. I want to live my life focused on what I should be focused on, giving to what I need to be giving to, serving where I need to serve, living what I need to live, proclaiming what I need to proclaim, and doing what God's called me to do. And my prayer is that you want that too. And you'll make the adjustments in your life where God is trying to get your attention to say, Yes, Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment that we would live our lives for you and you alone. That you are priority one, priority 1A, 1B, 1C. You are it. And then in the midst of that, we would understand the love that you have for us. How you love us and forgive us and set us on the path that is best for us and that we would live passionately for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.